Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hey, Monica. Hey, Sammy. So today, Monica and I had the idea to talk more in specifics. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about different broad, overarching topics of emotional intelligence and boundary setting with patients and things like that. But today, we wanted to dive into a specific patient case to illustrate how we chat about patients and where we go with our discussions. I think that this conversation is a good reminder for me that we need a community in our clinics. We need a community of people around us to help us work through patient cases. Today, we're going to be talking about a case. Yeah, and some things that have gone well and reflections that we have in the moment. I think the more we talk about cases with other people, the more we learn, whether it's a current patient or a past patient whether it was easy and what went well about it and whether it was tough and what went well or what totally didn't work. I think it can give us such a different perspective. Okay, Sammy. So there's a patient that I actually have in mind that I would love to start off with, give a brief description of him, what I thought the challenge would be while working with this patient. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts and we'll at this point probably just jump into questions like we usually do. So a little while ago, I saw a man who was coming in for a recent exacerbation of low back pain, and he believed that there was a very pathoanatomical cause of his pain and that he had this mindset like, well, I have this, this is it, I'm going to have this forever, I've done all the PT before, I don't know what of the PT is going to help because I have done so many different exercises in the past. And although he had a recent flare-up, his pain had actually began when he was a teenager. And then in his 20s, he was diagnosed with scoliosis. And about seven or eight years before we started working together, he had a work-related low back injury. And that's when his pain really became debilitating. So I knew my work was going to be cut out for me because this wasn't a simple, straightforward, hey, let me educate you and we'll be good to go knowing that he had this almost lifelong history of pain, I thought, well, there's got to be some beliefs that feed into this. There's got to be some experiences that have probably shaped the way that he perceives his pain. Knowing he's had PT before, knowing he's seen other doctors, I'm already thinking, what have they said to him? What have they said to him that's good? What have they said to him that is just sticking in his mind and contributing to this? So I think my problem was, how do I approach this type of case, right? Because there's so many moving components to it. And this is one of those, oh, I want to fix it for you. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you that you're not going to be disabled. I want to tell you that you can get back to life. I want to tell you that there is life with chronic pain. So part of my problem was also wanting to fix it. And then just the lifelong, the complexity of this person's pain and how do you reconcile the two? 
So I'm curious, with this patient, did you have information about the chronicity of this pain and background on him before you ever met him? Did you know these things going into the session? Great question. I knew some. I work in a job where we have primary care doctors and we also have PTs and chiros and things. So I had background on him and I knew that this was chronic pain and I was Mm -hmm. able to go through some of the notes, uh, really all the notes that were relevant to low back pain. I saw MRI findings in there. So I was already coming into the session aware that this wasn't an acute low back pain, that this was going to be chronic, that we were probably going to be facing all those different factors and beliefs that I just mentioned. That's a case where you don't want to necessarily make assumptions about a patient before you meet them, but it is so helpful to have that background and get your head on straight as a provider before going into it. How might I need to ask questions differently? How might I need to approach this differently than somebody with an acute low back pain issue? So I think that's really nice to have access to all that stuff. I'm curious, what sorts of things did you prepare for with this patient? Did you do anything differently in your subjective upon first meeting this guy that was not what you'd normally do? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So I think the biggest thing was mentally preparing myself and emotionally preparing myself. Mm -hmm. I made peace with the fact that, like you said, I don't want to judge this guy. I don't want to put him in a chronic, tough to treat bucket and then label him the issue. But I also know that realistically, there have to be beliefs and experiences that have been contributing to this pain. And to sit in the middle, I was like, this is not going to be a one-time conversation, Monica. This is not going to be a find the right thing and just say it. This is going to be a process with this person. And the first thing you need to do is listen. And that was the most important thing I think that I did going in. And I also didn't have other patients on my schedule. And I was like, I'm going to listen to this guy. I have the time. I think today I have the emotional space for it. And I actually ended up spending 90 minutes with him for the evaluation. And I think it was absolutely the most valuable use of time. I would say 80 to 90% of that was talking. I, I think from the note I reviewed, I generally looked at low back so that it was an assessment And I had a photo score on him and fear avoidance and pain catastrophizing. So I had a few objective measures, but the majority of my time was spent asking him questions, listening. And then at the very end, I think the best thing I did for intervention was, again, talk to him and start to lay a different groundwork for what PT could be like. And what a way to establish rapport right off the bat spending that quality time getting to know their complaint, their history. I think that sounds really valuable. Makes me wish we had 90 minutes with every patient. Yeah, not to go off on a tangent, but 90 minutes with someone who, not even chronic pain, but 90 minutes for an evaluation, I got to listen to everything. And I said things to him like, take me back in time to when you first felt the pain what was going on in your life, what stands out to you. And I got to take that level of detail through his entire story. So even though I knew, hey, he's had pain for a while, there seems to be an injury, something about scoliosis, I got to hear his story from his perspective. And I want to share a couple of the things that stood out. 
his pain first started when he was coming out. And then he was used to that pain. That pain never got assessed. So by the time in his 20s, he went to a doctor for back pain. He got diagnosed with scoliosis. And guess what? 37 degrees of scoliosis. There's nothing we can do about it now. So that's already a message he's hearing from a doctor. There's nothing we can do about it now, which to me sort of implies there's something we could have done before. Oh, yeah, totally. Right. Which maybe puts some regret in the patient's mind. I missed my opportunity to feel better. Now I'm screwed. Some anger, some grief around that. A lot of different emotions. So now I'm like, okay, interesting. So life went on, life went on. So the next event that he described was a work-related injury, and that didn't go very well. He was at a job that he was really dissatisfied with, that he was super unhappy about, he said. And from a weekend of very strenuous lifting, moving activities, after that weekend, he started waking up with foot drop. and. It seemed that didn't really get diagnosed. He got sent to PT just to work with PT and tried that and that didn't get better. And then finally, after a few months, went to get an MRI. They found out that he had herniated discs contributing to this. And the doctor said, hey, uh, I think it's too late to operate. looks like your foot drop is starting to get better now. If you had come in right away, I would have operated on you immediately. Mm, so another another episode of regret. And then this part, oh, this part was a dagger in my heart. He said, the PT told me it was the worst MRI that he's ever seen in someone who's walking. Ugh. Ugh, you said that quote before and it's just painful. So I keep saying it to myself to, I guess I'm a sadist. I keep saying it to myself (laughs) to remind me that our words matter so much. And maybe this person was in shock. Maybe this PT felt like they missed something. Maybe they were trying to really explain the symptoms to the guy. And so how am I going to launch into an explanation of MRIs just show degeneration? It's like wrinkles on the inside of your body. How are you going to say that to a person with that type of experience? Oh, yeah. And so what stood out to me was the fact that I had this time. I listened. I asked him. I tried to reflect back emotions. And as he was telling his story, I think one thing I did really well with this patient was be aware of my own emotions. Like, I am shocked and outraged that somebody said that to him. And also try to reflect his emotions and say, it must have been really scary for you when this happened, or that must have been very frustrating, or you must have felt angry at that time. And so we kind of had this dialogue of emotional connection as well. It wasn't just, okay, mm-hmm, yep, and then what happened, and then what happened. And I tried to intersperse those because I hoped that what he got from that is I'm really listening to your story. I'm not just taking the objective measures from what you're telling me. I'm trying to hear how this has been for you. And we talked a little bit about his job and why he was unhappy with it because that kind of came in bits and pieces, right? I'm telling you the story now looking back with cohesiveness. But of course, during this evaluation, I want to say that it wasn't this smooth. It was going wherever he would go. And I allowed myself to be pretty flexible with my interview structure. I knew I wanted to get the pain measures and the intensity and the quality and duration and all of that. 
But more than that, I wanted to understand how he understood his pain. One thing that really sticks out to me in this story of how you're describing your interaction with this patient is that you did such great prep work going into this interaction. And I'm just recalling our interview with Mike, where he said, how often do we go into a patient session fully ready to commit ourselves to that session, fully ready to hear what they're saying, fully ready to let everything else go by the wayside and focus on them? It sounds to me like you were really able to be present for this person because, number one, you had time, which... I think just, <laughs> again, I'm not going to go off on our healthcare tangent, but like, damn, you know, sometimes when we're having those back-to-back sessions, we don't have that time and that space to fully be present with that person in front of us. So it sounds like time was a factor there, but also just knowing that you had that background and you really considered what might have led this person to this point in time and were willing to sit with that story. Yeah, I want to give you kudos for that. It sounds like you really did the work. And you did the work to prep for his stuff, but also to get yourself ready. You were ready to sit with your own emotions. You were like, whoa, I'm feeling the fixer creep in. I'm feeling these things pop up for me. And you were able to notice that and then self-regulate as we discussed in our emotional intelligence podcast. So I feel like it just all ties together so well here. So I'm pretty fun to see all those little threads. Thanks, Sammy. I think you nailed it. And I didn't realize how much the prep work helped me, but I think you're spot on. I was ready to go where he was willing to go. And I think back to our trauma-informed podcast, I tried not to force him into exploring something he wasn't ready to. So there was also a lot of, I would like to know the background of your pain because that would help me understand what's going on. Can we go back in time and talk about this? And he was like, sure, let's do it. So this patient isn't coming in for pelvic floor dysfunction. They're ortho, which sometimes I almost am not as trauma-informed with, if that makes sense. Oh, sure, orthopedics, you are going to be more okay with stuff. Let's just do it. Well, with him, I really tried to practice trauma-informed principles, like asking for permission, like bringing in his autonomy, like making sure that he was part of the process and that I was not saying, here's a treatment that we need to do, but offering up the options, the menu list and saying, what are you interested in? Because all of these things we could do and getting his perspective. So I think that was also a very important part because he had worked with so many other providers. So I thought I can't just be another PT who gives him three exercises and watches him exercise every week for six weeks, and then is surprised by his pain. Clearly, that didn't work, right? (laughs) Clearly. He had thousands of exercises, he said. He's like, I've done everything. So I was like... The solution, it would have worked by now. (laughs) It would have worked. And I think that maybe younger me would have been like, well, I know the right exercises for you. (laughs) And literally... That would have been me. But older me was like, okay, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. I'm not even that creative with exercise, but I am a great listener. What is going on? And maybe that will somehow help. And I think it did. He left the session feeling like you listened to me. And he did send me a message after and was like, thank you for taking the time His referring PCP also said that he reached out and said that he thought we had an amazing first session. 
And to be honest, I think I prescribed posterior pelvic tilts at the end. That was my recommendation (laughs) because he was really scared of lumbar flexion and bending forward. And that was his chief complaint. And so we found that maybe seated pelvic tilts were still working on that motion for him, but weren't as dangerous perhaps as he thought. It's funny because on paper, I'm like, what the heck? There was hardly... There was hardly an exam. There was hardly an exercise program that came out of this. Again, by all my old measures, this would not have been a great evaluation. By all my new measures, I think this is one of the ones that I am most proud of for how I showed up and how I worked with him. And actually... As an aside, the referring primary care provider works a lot with people with chronic pain, and we work in a system where right now they co-sign our notes for the evaluation. So she read my evaluation and reached out, was like, how did you find all this out? How did you get all this information? What are you asking people? Why is he so happy with you? What happened here? And yeah, wow. Really cool. (laughs) It's cool that she reached out. Yeah, because I thought, oh my God, this evaluation is so long. Like, (laughs) I think my impression is like PCPs just want a quick answer and want to move on. And let me tell you, this was not a quick evaluation. It took me a while to write it up because... I took a lot of notes as we were going. And then afterwards, I had to sit down and put them in order, which is time consuming. And also, I really wanted to capture what this patient was experiencing and put words to it. So there was a lot in that. It was a very long evaluation, but it was really cool to see that it sparked both people. Yeah. Wow. First of all, I'm surprised you work somewhere where the doctors read your notes. Maybe I don't give them enough credit, but that's very cool that this doctor read the note, first of all, and then took the time to reach out to you to find out how you took your subjective, how you got this information. So I'm just very impressed with that. I'm just taking a moment to appreciate that doctor. Very rare. That's rare. I think they might read it, but we don't know because there's no communication and out of sight, out of mind. If you don't tell me. I'm like, okay, well, that didn't really affect you. So what's interesting to me is now to think, I wonder how I could influence healthcare practice just by the way I practiced. Because this was like an isolated case and I had the time, I had the space, I did it this way. And now this provider has some of the questions that I ask. And we talked a lot about what we've shared before, some of our questions to ask patients with pain. And she's maybe doing that, you know, even if she does that a little bit, even if she just thinks maybe there's a different way to talk to people in pain. Wow. Now that could touch all the patients that she sees. Yeah, for sure. It's operating on the micro, but it has these ripple effects like you're describing. So it's just, that's really cool. So it sounds like a really, really good first meeting, the subjective exam sounds so thorough. It sounds like you really understood the story and then gave something that was tailored to the patient's chief complaint, but also addressing their fear around that specific movement. So all in all, it sounds like a great first meeting. And I'm curious next, what did you do in subsequent sessions? What was your focus with this patient? Where did you go from there? I'm so glad you asked because it seems like a fairy tale, right? Like, We had enough time. We had the emotional connection. The doctor was touched. You would think that he might come back and be like, my pain is getting better. (laughs) He didn't. 
nothing changed. He came back and was like, things are worse. <laughs> As it goes with chronic pain, right? As it goes with humans. So yeah, totally. We, we got to laugh about it because he's like, yeah, it's worse. And so part of me was like, oh shit, did I do something wrong? And then I, again, I was like, hold on, be patient, listen. So the next thing I did that I think was great that I'm proud of is I said, okay, what's been going on in your life this past week? And I have learned through so many patients that I have not asked this with that you need to ask when they tell you something got better and something got worse, you need to ask what's been going on in your week or mm-hmm. why do you think it got better? I ask people who have gotten better, why do you think it got better? Because sometimes it's not at all related to exercise. (laughs) (laughs) And when people get worse, I ask them, what's been going on in your life? Because my experience also tells me that there's usually things outside of the three exercises that we give that made it worse. Right. It's so arrogant that we think our our three exercises are the the only thing that could have influenced their pain. Um, It's like our narrow little view. I I find myself asking often, what do you attribute that flare up to? Or, Mm. you know, what do you attribute that improvement to? And just let them go. Sometimes they have nothing, but sometimes they come up with stuff where I'm like, I would never have thought to ask that. Okay. I asked him and he told me that actually he's having a really hard time at work again. And we know that there's a connection between work satisfaction and low back pain Mm -hmm. and pain intensity. So immediately I'm thinking, okay, this makes sense from the way I understand it. And we talked about stress and he shared with me what was going on at work. So that was an opportunity now to say, can I share what I know about how stress influences pain? He said, sure. And then I got to talk about how stress influences our pain threshold and that stress isn't necessarily the cause of pain, but stress sensitizes our nervous system. And while we may not be able to change this particular stressor for him because it was something truly outside of his control, how about we find ways to de-stress because that may help you with better pain management. And he's like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. And interestingly, he's like, you know, I'm the one who's always telling other people how to de-stress. And I said, great, you're familiar with the techniques. So how about we use some of them on you? And he did describe a few techniques. I also shared some that I like as well. And so together, we basically had a pile of things that he could do. And I also thought, hey, I need to go big picture with this guy. So we had that conversation and I don't remember how the transition here happened, but I thought we get him walking and moving. So I said, in addition to specific exercise, general exercise can help aerobic exercise. What do you know about that? And again, we talked about how it can help reduce pain. And we talked about how to start small with him because he was experiencing a lot of pain at the time and talked about doing five minute walks twice a day and just building up from there. So that was pretty much the end of that session. And then our third session, he came back and he's like, hey, things are pretty similar. I really still cannot bend forward much more. And I thought, okay, let me do more of a physical exam because I did intend to do more of a physical exam, but our second session divulged into a lot of talking. He had more questions exploring some of the day one themes more. So day three, I was like, okay, let's go ahead and do an assessment. Let's reassess what we've been doing. So we did, and his range of motion was pretty similar. 
but I had the thought to do a slump test with him. And that test was really interesting. It totally reproduced his symptoms. And he was like, I've been hamstring stretching forever. But we found that with a slump, he actually could barely start to straighten his knee the moment he tried to go past 90 degrees and extend his knee. He was already getting symptoms. And so he had this huge aha moment where he was like, are you serious? I have nerve tension. Why have I been stretching my hamstrings for 10 years with people pushing on them and me never being able to do it? And what I forgot to mention is that he had talked about his hamstrings that day quite a bit. He told me multiple times about his hamstrings. So we did the slump. And then I explained what nerve tension is. And then I explained to go easy with nerves because he was getting a visceral reaction every time he tried to go to end range. And I was like, stop that. Keep it comfortable. I think what was important is teaching him to go slow. Mm-hmm. and to listen to his body. That's what I took away from it because maybe I could have even given him a hamstring stretch and still just taught him to go slow, not to get sympathetic, not to get visceral feelings with this and to keep it comfortable. I think that's the message he needed to hear. Slow down, pause, slow and steady will get you there too. So let me go to our fourth visit. We talk about his upcoming visit with a doctor. And I'm nervous for this visit, Sammy. That's what I remember is I'm thinking, oh my God, you're going to go to another doctor. They're going to do MRIs on you. Is it a new doctor? Yes. Okay. Going to go to a new doctor. You're going to have a conversation. You want injections. Oh, how is this going to go? I mean, to be honest, I was kind of dreading it for him. I was very nervous for him. He was really hopeful about it overall. He really wanted, I think, the injections. I didn't want to give him the nocebo effect. So that episode helped me a lot because I kept thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I don't want to tell him it's not going to work. That would be dumb. He's in chronic pain. Why would I tell him something is not going to help him? Mm-hmm. It's not okay. It's not like this is his third, fourth, fifth series, and now I'm worried about degeneration. Why would I tell him this isn't going to work? Just let him do the thing. <laughs> so it was a very hard session for me because I was trying to navigate supporting him, answering his questions, which he always has many of. And also there was this part of me that wanted to be nocebic, to be like, hey, injections may not be the thing. And I was surprised by that impulse. And I was surprised and really glad that I didn't say that. Yeah. I've had that same impulse with patients when they describe a medical treatment that they want to pursue, especially when it's one of these high healthcare users, chronic pain, somebody who's going from doctor to doctor, trying to get answers, treatments, something like that. I have the same impulse. And I don't know about you, but when I feel that impulse, I think a lot of it also comes from this idea of insecurity in what we're doing of you haven't given PT a fair shot yet. Think of all the things that I can do for you. We haven't explored the beliefs around your pain enough. We haven't explored the graded exposure to movement. You know, I have all these things I want to do. And when they tell me that they're getting an injection, I go, well, shit, you know, like that's it failing on my part because I think that they, they didn't value what I did. So now they're choosing the other thing for myself. And again, I'm not sure if this is true for you. You can 
verify or not, but I think it's helpful to understand that this person's just looking for anything that they can and it's not about you. Yeah, a hundred percent, Sammy. What stood out to me is you used the word failure, and I was immediately like, Yep, I think that this is failing, or they think that this is failing. And I think, why do I believe that the worst possible outcome for someone is to leave PT and get an injection and feel better? Right? And that's like a scarcity mindset in a way. Mm -hmm. There's only one treatment that can help you. And it's nuanced because to your point, sometimes we do need to have these conversations and say, listen, is another MRI really going to get you what you need? And I didn't quite feel that this was the right time or the right thing to say to this person. And I'm glad I didn't. I'm so glad because session five, he comes back. He knew he was probably going to get injections, by the way. So we decided to space out our visits. And we had something like three weeks between appointments from the fourth to the fifth visit. He takes this break. He comes back. I'm thinking it's anyone's guess what's going to happen. He feels better. He feels so much better. The injections are working. Now, what's interesting is I've noticed this with people, and he's a great example of it. He felt better, but he told me mostly about the things that still hurt. But it was evident from what he was saying that he was better. So it's like when I was writing everything he said out, I was like, why does this feel like there's such a negative tone here? Because when I look at it, everything's gotten better. So we redid his subjective completely at that point, And his pain had dropped by an average of three points. Current average worst pain had all improved. His range of motion was actually painless at this point. His flexion was still pretty limited. Uh, I think it was like 50 or 60%, but it didn't hurt for him to do it. He was walking over 30 minutes without pain although he wanted to do that more often. So he kept making these little comments like, oh, well, I need to walk more and oh, I need to do this. And that shows me that someone could be really hard on themselves. And he kept doing a lot of that, which can make it hard to see just how well they're doing. But I kept that in mind. And I was so glad that he had gotten these injections because he was feeling better. And now the conversation was, I feel better. I think I can push myself. What should I do next? So we redid his photo. This was a really cool moment. His photo obviously got better. It's basically an Oswestry that's modified. It's a computer automated test. The test only selects certain questions based on the person's answers. So his pain got better. Pretty much I think that's because of the injection or because of a placebo and either way, who cares? However, I also include fear avoidance and pain catastrophizing on all my photo questionnaires, and his fear avoidance dropped by 30 points. Dang. He went from an 80 to a 50. Wow. And his pain catastrophizing dropped. So I thought, now those I'll take credit for, because that's what I've been doing for the four or five visits that we'd seen each other, is I had committed myself to slowly trying to help him change his fear avoidance beliefs. And there are other things that I have not talked about in here that are all coming to mind now. My brain is full of ideas to say, but I think what I want to emphasize is that I was so careful in how I chose to answer his questions and to try to pull it all back towards the sense of autonomy, 
we need to see what we discover about your body. You live in your body. Your experience is valid. How can we change this gradually? And what was the coolest about visit five or four? I don't remember. But what was the coolest about that visit is he went from waiting for me to prescribe exercise to saying, I tried these two stretches on my own. And um, cool. I'm not sure if that's okay. You know, I don't, I don't know. But I tried them and they felt pretty good. And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Finally, you are not scared. Finally. Cool. <laughs> like you are willing yeah. to experiment. And during the exercise part of that session, I was like, listen, these exercises do make sense because he still wants some connection to anatomy and to things that make sense. So I can't just live in this abstract space. I was like, the stretches you did, I think would be great for your back because they're stretching these types of hip muscles. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And that's it. I didn't try to explain why the muscles were tight or say the muscles were tight. I literally was like, you are stretching these muscles, which attach to this area. And that area was near his pain. And he was like, cool. That was it. We didn't get into any other mechanical stuff. And then I said, keep doing this. You know a lot of exercises. You live in your body. And if you have an idea that something would help, then try it. And maybe keep in mind these parameters. Go slow. Do a few reps. Know that you can modify your range of motion. See how you feel 24 hours later. And start exploring. And also, I said, what if we start doing strengthening? Because you're feeling better now. So, you know, what if we strengthen? And he's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. And he'd also had some beliefs that he was very weak and deconditioned, which in part he was. So I think that the focus on strengthening was also kind of inspirational. I didn't get fancy with it. I picked just a couple basic exercises, like a bridge and then I forget the other two. I didn't pick anything fancy, but things that would make sense to him that he's seen before, he felt comfortable doing those. So that's part of the reason I selected them. And we said, hey, let's follow up in a month. Because now he didn't feel the need to see me as often and to get my permission, ask me questions, see if things are okay, ask for me to grade his symptoms. I truly believe that at this point, he's gaining more autonomy and he's starting to think what I think really matters and the way that I want to exercise is important and I have these tools and let me use these tools and let me go out there on my own and see how I feel. Very cool. With this patient, I don't know if you've had him come back for his month follow-up or if that's something that's still in progress, but what do you see as this patient's future? What do you see could be the possible pitfalls or successes. What do you envisioned for him? So he came back and then the next conversation was about what could be next around the corner. And I said that. I was like, so you're feeling better. You're feeling confident. So what do you need from PT now? And he was like, oh, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, that's a great time for me to jump in and share what other people have done. Other people have discharged because they're happy with where they're at and they don't have more questions. Other people have set new goals and said, okay, well, now that that easy stuff is done, I actually have something more important I want to work on. And so we could work on something harder for you together. What do you think? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know how to be consistent with exercise. That was his whole thing that visit. 
I don't know how to be consistent with exercise. And I thought, hmm, interesting. When people are trying to tell me that I need to tell them how to be consistent with exercise, I always think there's more to this story than meets the eye. I was like, is it motivation? There's something else going on. So turns out that the stuff he was doing was just super unmotivating. Just isolated exercises did not feel good. Going for walks was like, eh, it's okay. And you know what he hadn't done in a very long time was rock climb. And when he talked about rock climbing, he lit up. And in my mind and in my heart, when you said what's next for him, I thought, rock climbing. Like rock climbing is next because I think that he could get back to it in some capacity. I don't know a lot about rock climbing, so I'm not going to try to say what and how much. And I planted that seed and I was like, what would it take for you to feel comfortable getting back to rock climbing? And he could identify a few things. He was like, I would need to feel confident. I don't feel confident at all that I could do that. I would need to be able to jump off of the small wall that I could start on. And he actually had some very specific physical things he would need to do. And again, I don't know anything about rock climbing, but when I listened, I was like, I could teach you how to jump. I could teach you how to load. I could teach you how to do this. And I said that to him. So what I'm hearing is that we need to build up your confidence. And I think the way that we would do that is to practice these tasks broken down into smaller chunks. And we focus on load and capacity. And that was the first time we really got to have the load versus capacity talk. And he brought up, I don't think I'll ever be able to do this again because the jelly in my jelly donut has been squashed out forever. And so (laughs) I have no shock absorption. And I was like, okay, take a deep breath, take a deep breath. And I was like, there's newer research that maybe that understanding of pain doesn't really serve people. And here's what we're learning about pain. And I explained load versus capacity. And he's like, huh, okay, that's interesting. And I talked about how we might progress him to eventually just climbing with a belay where someone is supporting you. I hope I said that right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You did. (laughs) Um, Okay. So then we talked about how do you do that? Because that's more unexpected, right? If it's just you on a small wall, you can plan for most things. But what if you get jerked suddenly? And I was like, we could plan for that. We could practice jumping, whatever. I was like, you have a dog. Why don't you practice jumping and have your dog near you? That way you'll have to react to all these weird movements and stuff. And he was like, oh, I never thought of training quick reactive movements. And I was like, yeah, I think that would be supportive as well. So he left that one, I think, just mind blown in a way that this could even be an option. And his words at the beginning of the session were, how do I consistently exercise? You need to make me. And at the end of the session were, oh my God, I'm so excited at the thought of rock climbing. That is awesome. The other thing that came out of that session that was huge, Sammy, is as we started talking more about logistically, how could we get him to rock climb? He paused and I was like, what's on your mind? And he said, rock climbing has been the one part of my identity that I have not been able to integrate into this whole chronic pain thing because I loved that so much. And that's like the thing I haven't been able to do for eight years. And I also just couldn't imagine giving it up. So I've just been suffering with the fact that I can't do that. And I said, yeah, you lost a a big part of your identity in that moment. And I didn't try to say, oh, yeah, you'll be doing it in two to three months. Don't worry. Because I don't know. Maybe it takes him six months. Maybe it takes him a year. There could be obstacles that come up as he tries to 
follow what I think is a pretty doable program. And we just sat with that for a little bit. I do think that was hard. He ended up trying to make some jokes about it. So to me, it says we struck a really deep, vulnerable chord that he wasn't just going to sit with the sadness and the grief. I think maybe that was the first time he really said, I've been reconciling the two. That's how it struck me. I don't know if that's true. So that was super powerful. And that is now teaching me something about him and his exercise. That's been the part of the story that I can share, I would say, so far. There's other things that we've been working on, but I think that kind of snippet of this story highlights how long it can take. Every single session, Sammy, I did have to prepare the way you mentioned. I had to really think, how can I be there to support this person? How can I talk to them? I hope that story highlights some of the actions that I took, how I responded to him, how he showed up, and also how willing he was to do the work. Because this worked because he was willing to do the work. Definitely. And not everyone will be, necessarily. It sounds like you found each other at the right time. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways. But I also love the point you make about being patient. Because this type of treatment model does not work in our traditional framework of PT or clinical care in general. It requires time. It requires patience. It requires writing notes where you're like, what did we even do today? (laughs) You know what I mean? Because from a documentation standpoint, it's not going to look like a traditional visit would look. You're not going to have those three exercises and that unit of e-stim that you bill. But what a different experience this person had of PT. And what a different experience it was for you because you're not sitting there going, why aren't my three exercises working for this person? What's wrong with me? What did I do poorly in this? I'm a bad PT. Mm -hmm. But instead, you were able to come at it from a point of shared decision making, managing your expectations around Mm. this patient, going slowly, not expecting that there is going to be this major change within a session or even between sessions. And that's a totally different framework. So it's really interesting. I think there's so many of these little walls that you're breaking down about traditional PT care that I'm hearing in this story. It's pretty powerful stuff. It definitely is food for thought. Thanks, Sammy. I wish that I got to spend 90 minutes with all my intakes from it. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) And then I feel like our sessions for the most part could be shorter. My sessions with this patient were still the full amount of time. Maybe a couple of them ended a little bit early, but for the most part, we did use the time to talk. And I think Over time, I will probably become more efficient at it too. These were sessions that I wouldn't say were draining, like, oh, I've been hit by a ton of bricks, but I felt pretty tired mentally after them because I spent so much time choosing my words, practicing my emotional intelligence skills, self-regulating, identifying his emotions. It was really like I was trying to integrate all these different skills all together So each time definitely felt like I put in a good amount of work. I needed a break. I needed a snack. I needed to do those physical things to take care of myself. And it was also very inspiring. It was very inspiring. And I think it's trickling over into other cases, other patients I'm seeing who maybe are not this perfect kind of cusp of pain and willingness. And it's helped me I would say immensely, even in working with people with 
basic acute knee pain and how I show up in those sessions. So that was a really cool case. I've actually learned about it from talking with you. That's, I thought I had what I needed from it. And now I'm realizing how important the prep work is. So I want to highlight that. And Sammy, I think that'll wrap up our first case discussion. I get the impression that this was fun for us, but probably also helpful for others. So we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.